The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 14 Whilst things are beginning to, to warm up, I'd just like to start by saying a few words. Um, uh, I'd like to, this this particular week's reading, I would um, like to dedicate to two people. Uh, the first is the late Sir Ian Holm, um, who passed away on Friday at the age of 88. Um, many of you will know of him as probably, uh, most noticeably, as Bilbo uh, in the Lord of the Rings cycle of films. Um, others of you may know him as uh, Ash, I think it was, the uh, uh, amoral, uh, evil presence of of um, the, the first android uh, in the very first Alien film, who his role was superb, his quiet menace was insane. Um, but my first uh, knowledge of, of really of Ian Holm um, was as Frodo. He played Frodo in uh, the 1981 BBC adaptation uh, of uh, The Lord of the Rings. It's the BBC radio version. I urge you, I urge you to get it. Um, it is available, I believe, on things like audible.com. Um, it's on um, iTunes, I think. Um, it is absolutely, quite simply, brilliant. Ian Holm is my Frodo. Uh, he just brought that role alive and and... The BBC adaptation was the closest thing I've seen to the images that I had in my head reading Lord of the Rings uh, as, a, as a youngster. Um, so please, um, I was physically, it was, it was very bizarre. Um, I, I had a very strong visceral physical reaction um, when I heard, read the news of Sir Ian Holmes passing. I literally sobbed, I gasped, I, I inhaled. It was, it was quite quite shocking that somebody i had never met i had never known as a lovely comment actually from one of my friends on facebook who did meet him a lovely anecdote so if you are friends with me on facebook please take a look at that but thank you for sharing that jens if you're listening but it was amazing that there's this somebody i'd never known personally could i could have such a strong reaction about and it's because of the impact that he had on my life i realized that uh um Part of the reason I'm doing this is because of the what what I saw Ian Holm being able to do as as a as a voice actor, um, and so I would like to dedicate um, in my own personal way this particular reading, this evening's reading, to Sir Ian Holm uh, as my way of saying thank you for inspiring me um, to do this stuff. And the second person that I would like to dedicate this evening's reading to. Um, is somebody that that Sir Ian's passing 
got me to thinking about even more, and that is my father, uh, John Anthony Ogden. My father uh, is 82 years old. It is Father's Day today. Um, and I love my dad. I love him very, very much. And a lot of um, who I am today is because of the things that I've learnt through being his son. So, Dad, thank you very much. Happy Father's Day. Um, this evening's reading is for you. Love you. Okay, I need a cup of tea. Hold on a sec. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, sorry, that got a bit more <laughs> emotional than I thought it was going to. One last thing before I start the reading. There are, in, in the, the Lord of the Rings books, um, there is the, the, the refrain of, of the song uh, that, uh, or the poem and song that, that um, Frodo, sorry, Bilbo writes, The Road Goes Ever On and On. And in the, I think there are three versions in the book, and the final one is, is, is sort of recited by uh, Bilbo uh, at the end of the journey. Um, and I'd just like to quote that um, before we start the, uh, the the Hitchhiker's stuff because it's a lovely version and this is for, for my tribute to, to Sir Ian Holm. The road goes ever on and on, out from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, let others follow it who can. Let them a journey new begin. But I, at last, with weary feet, will turn towards the lighted inn, my evening rest and sleep to meet. Rest in peace, Sir Ian Holm, and thank you very much. And thank you for indulging me, everyone. Um, <laughs> um, I know that's not what you listened, tuned in for, but you got it anyway. So, right, let's get into this evening's reading. Uh, to recap, we are in Life, the Universe and Everything. Um, and uh, we have had our first encounter with uh, Bistromathics. Um, and that has somewhat uh, unknitted and re-knitted um, both Ford and uh, Arthur's uh, brains uh, with their experience of it. Um, we will crack on. We realise that there are weird things afeet um intentional uh weird things afeet uh, in the universe um and uh, it's got something to do with cricket but what we don't quite know yet let us read on another world another day another dawn the early morning's thinnest sliver of light appeared silently Several billion trillion tons of super-hot exploding hydrogen nuclei rose slowly above the horizon and managed to look small, cold and slightly damp. There is a moment in every dawn when light floats. There is the possibility of magic. Creation holds its breath. The moment passed, as it regularly did on Scorn Shellus Zeta, without incident. The mist clung to the surface of the marshes. The swamp trees were grey with it, the tall reeds indistinct. It hung motionless, like held breath. Nothing moved. There was silence. 
The sun struggled feebly with the mist, tried to impart a little warmth here, shed a little light there, but clearly today was going to be just another long haul across the sky. Nothing moved. A long silence. Nothing moved. Silence. Nothing moved. Very often, on Squawn Shellus Zeta, whole days would go on like this, and this was indeed going to be one of them. Fourteen hours later, the sun sank hopelessly beneath the opposite horizon, with a sense of totally wasted effort. And a few hours later, it reappeared, squared its shoulders, and started up on the sky again. This time, however, something was happening. A mattress had just met a robot. Hello, robot, said the mattress. Burr said the robot, and continued what it was doing, which was walking round very slowly in a very tiny circle. Happy, said the mattress. The robot stopped and looked at the mattress. It looked at it quizzically. It was clearly a very stupid mattress. It looked back at him with wide eyes. After what it had calculated to ten significant decimal places as being the precise length of pause most likely to convey a general contempt for all things mattressy, the robot continued to walk around in tight circles. We, we could have a conversation, said the mattress. Would you like that? It was a large mattress and probably one of quite high quality. Very few things actually get manufactured these days, because in an infinitely large universe, such as, for instance, the one in which we live, most things one could possibly imagine, and a lot of things one would rather not, grow somewhere. A forest was discovered recently in which most of the trees grew ratchet screwdrivers as fruit. The life cycle of a ratchet screwdriver is quite interesting. Once picked, it needs a dark, dusty drawer in which it can lie undisturbed for several years. Then, one night, it suddenly hatches, discards its outer skin, which crumbles into dust, and emerges as a totally unidentifiable little metal object with flanges at both ends and a sort of ridge and a sort of hole for a screw. This, when found, will get thrown away. No one knows what it is supposed to gain from this. Nature, in her infinite wisdom, is presumably working on it. No one really knows what mattresses are meant to gain from their lives, either. They are large, friendly, pocket-sprung creatures which live quiet private lives in the marshes of Squanshellus Zeta. Many of them get caught, slaughtered, dried out, shipped out, and slept on. None of them seem to mind this, and all of them are called Zem. No, said Marvin. My name, said the mattress, is Zem. We could discuss the weather a little. Marvin paused again in his weary circular plod. The dew, 
he observed, has clearly fallen with a particularly sickening thud this morning. He resumed his walk, as if inspired by this conversational outburst, to fresh heights of gloom and despondency. He plodded tenaciously. If he had had teeth, he would have gritted them at this point. He hadn't. He didn't. The mere plod said it all. The mattress philolloped around. This is a thing that only mattresses in swamps are able to do, which is why the word is not in more common usage. It's philolloped in a sympathetic sort of way, moving a fairish body of water as it did so. It blew a few bubbles up through the water engagingly. Its blue and white stripes glistened briefly in a sudden feeble ray of sun that had unexpectedly made it through the mist, causing the creature to bask momentarily. Marvin plodded. "'You have something on your mind, I think,' said the mattress, floopily. "'More than you can possibly imagine,' dreared Marvin. My capacity for mental activity of all kinds is as boundless as the infinite reaches of space itself. Except, of course, for my capacity for happiness. Stomp, stomp, he went. My capacity for happiness, he added, you could fit into a matchbox without taking out the mattresses first. The mattress globbered. This is the noise made by a live swamp-dwelling mattress that is deeply moved by a story of personal tragedy. The word can also, according to the ultra-complete maxi-megalong dictionary of every language ever, mean the noise made by the Lord High San Valvewag of Hollop, on discovering that he has forgotten his wife's birthday for the second year running. Since there was only ever one Lord High San Valvewag of Hollop, and he never married, the word is only ever used in a negative or speculative sense, and there is an ever-increasing body of opinion which holds that the ultra-complete Maximegalon dictionary is not worth the fleet of lorries it takes to cart its micro-stored edition around in. Strangely enough, the dictionary omits the word floopily, which simply means in the manner of something which is floopy. The mattress globbered again. I sense a deep dejectedness in your diodes, it volued. For the meaning of the word volue, by a copy of the Scornsheller Swamp Talk at any remaindered bookshop, or alternatively, by the ultra-complete Maximegalon dictionary, as the universe will be very glad to get it off their hands and regain some valuable parking lots. And it saddens me. You should be more mattress-like. We live quiet, retired lives in the swamp, where we are content to flollop and volume and regard the wetness in a fairly floopy manner. Some of us are killed, but all of us are called them, 
so we never know which, and globbering is thus kept to a minimum. Why are you walking around in circles? Because my leg is stuck, said Marvin simply. It seems to me, said the mattress, eyeing it compassionately, that it is a pretty poor sort of a leg. You are right, said, Ma said Marvin. It is. Voon, said the mattress. I expect so, said Marvin, and I also expect that you find the idea of a robot with an artificial leg pretty amusing. You should tell your friends, Zem and Zem, when you see them later. They'll laugh if I know them, which I don't, of course, except in so far as I know all the organic life forms, which is much better than I would wish to. Oh, but my life is but a box of worm gears. He stomped around again in his tiny circle, around his thin steel peg leg, which revolved in the mud, but otherwise seemed stuck. But why do you just keep walking round and round? said the mattress. Just to make the point said Marvin, and continued round and round. Consider it made, my friend, flurbled the mattress. Consider it made. Just another million years, said Marvin. Just another quick million. Then I might try it backwards just for the variety, you understand. The mattress could feel deep in its innermost spring pockets that the robot dearly wished to be asked how long he had been trudging in this futile and fruitless manner, and with another quick, quiet flurble, he did so. <sighs> just over the 1.5 million mark. Just over, said Marvin airily. Ask me if I ever get bored. Go on, ask me. The mattress did. Marvin ignored the question. He merely trudged with added emphasis. I gave a speech once, he said suddenly, and apparently unconnectedly. You may not instantly see why I bring the subject up, but that is because my mind works so phenomenally fast, and I am, at a rough estimate, thirty billion times more intelligent than you. Let me give you an example. Think of a number, any number. Uh, ooh, uh, five, said the mattress. Wrong said Marvin. You see? The mattress was much impressed by this, and realised that it was in the presence of a not unremarkable mind. It willoomed along its entire length, 
sending excited little ripples through its shallow algae-covered pool. It gupped. "'Tell me,' it urged, "'of the speech you once made. "'I long to hear it.' "'It was received very badly,' said Marvin, "'for a variety of reasons. "'I delivered it,' <clears throat> he added, "'pausing to make an awkward humping sort of gesture "'with his not exactly good arm.' but his arm, which was better than the other one, which was dishearteningly, dishearteningly welded to his left side. Over there, about a mile distant. He was pointing as well as he could manage, but he obviously wanted to make it totally clear that this was as well as he could manage. Through the mist, over the reeds, to a part of the marsh which looked exactly the same, as every other part of the marsh. There, he repeated, I was somewhat of a celebrity at the time. Excitement gripped the mattress. It had never heard of speeches being delivered on sworn shellus Zeta, and certainly not by celebrities. Water spattered off it as a thrill glurried across its back. It did something which mattresses very rarely bother to do. Summoning every bit of its strength, it reared its oblong body, heaved it up into the air, and held it quivering there for a few seconds whilst it peered through the mist over the reeds at the part of the marsh which Marvin had indicated, observing, without disappointment, that it was exactly the same as every other part of the marsh. The effort was too much, and it flodged back into its pool, deluging Marvin with smelly mud, moss, and weeds. "'I was a celebrity,' droned the robot sadly, "'for a short while, on account of my miraculous and bitterly resented escape from a fate almost as good as death in the heart of a blazing sun.' "'You can guess from my condition,' he added, "'how narrow my escape was. "'I was rescued by a scrap metal merchant. "'Imagine that. "'Here I am, brain the sight. "'Oh, never mind.' "'He trudged savagely for a few seconds. "'He it was who fixed me up with this leg.' Hateful, isn't it? He, t he sold me to a mind zoo. I was the star exhibit. I had to sit on a box and tell my story whilst people told me to cheer up and think positive. Give us a grin, little robot, they would shout at me. Give us a little chuckle. I would explain to them that to get my face to grin would take a good couple of hours in a workshop with a wrench. And that went down very well. The speech, urged the mattress, I long to hear of the speech you gave in the marshes. There was a bridge built across the marshes. A cyber-structured hyperbridge, hundreds of miles in length, 
to carry ion buggies and freighters over the swamp. <gasps> a bridge, quirled the mattress, here in the swamp. A bridge, confirmed Marvin, here in the swamp. It was going to revitalize the economy of the Squanchellus system. They spent the entire economy of the Squanchellus system building it. They asked me to open it. Poor fools. It began to rain a little. A fine spray slid through the mist. I stood on the platform. For hundreds of miles in front of me, and hundreds of miles behind me, the bridge stretched. Did it glitter? enthused the mattress. It glittered. Did it span the miles majestically? It spanned the miles majestically. Did it stretch like a silver thread far out into the invisible mist? Yes, said Marvin. Do you want to hear this story? I want to hear your speech, said the mattress. This is what I said. I said, I would like to say that it is a very great pleasure, honour and privilege for me to open this bridge, but I can't because my lying circuits are all out of commission. I hate and despise you all. I now declare this hapless cyberstructure open to the unthinking abuse of all who wantonly cross her. And I plugged myself into the opening circuits. Marvin paused, remembering the moment. The mattress flurred and glurried. It flolloped and gupped and willoomed, doing this last in a particularly floopy kind of way. Thoon, it worfed at last, and was it a magnificent occasion? Reasonably magnificent. The entire thousand-mile-long bridge spontaneously folded up its glittering spans and sank weeping into the mire, taking everybody everybody with it. There was a sad and terrible pause at this point in the conversation, during which a hundred thousand people seemed unexpectedly to say, WHOP! And a team of white robots descended from the sky like dandelion seeds drifting on the wind in tight military formation. For a sudden, violent moment, they were all there, in the swamp, wrenching Marvin's false leg off. And then they were gone again, 
in their ship which said Foop You see the sort of thing I have to contend with said Marvin to the gobbering mattress Suddenly, a moment later, the robots were back again for another violent incident, and this time when they left, the mattress was alone in the swamp. He flolloped around in astonishment and alarm. He almost lurgled in fear. He reared himself to see over the reeds, but there was nothing to see. No robot, no glittering bridge, no ship, just more reeds. He listened, but there was no sound on the wind beyond the now familiar sound of half-crazed etymologists calling distantly to each other across the sullen mire. The body of Arthur Dent spun. The universe shattered into a million glittering fragments around it, and each particular shard spun silently through the void, reflecting on its silver surface some single searing holocaust of fire and destruction. And then the blackness behind the universe itself exploded, and each particular piece of blackness was the furious smoke of hell. And then the nothingness behind the blackness behind the universe erupted, and behind the nothingness behind the blackness behind the shattered universe was at last the dark figure of an immense man speaking immense words. These, then, said the figure, speaking from an immensely comfortable chair, were the cricket wars. The greatest devastation ever visited upon our galaxy. What you have experienced, Slarty Bartfast floated past, waving, is just a documentary, he called out. It, this is not a good bit, terribly sorry, trying to find the rewind control. Is what billions upon billions of innocent do not called out Slarty Bartfast, floating past again, and fiddling furiously with the thing that he'd stuck into the wall of the room of informa informational illusions, and which was in fact still stuck there. Do not agree to buy anything at this point. People, creatures, your fellow beings. Music swelled again. It was immense music, immense chords, and the man behind the, uh, behind the man, slowly, three tall pillars began to emerge out of the immensely swirling mist. Experienced, lived through, or more often failed to live through. Think of that, my friends, and let us not forget. And in just a moment I shall be able to suggest a way which will help us always to remember that before the cricket wars, the galaxy was that rare and wonderful thing, a happy galaxy. The music was going completely bananas with immensity at this point. 
A happy galaxy, my friends, as represented by the symbol of the wicket gate. The three pillars stood out clearly now. Three pillars topped with two cross pieces in a way which looked stupefyingly familiar to Arthur's addled brain. The three pillars, thundered the man, the steel pillar, which represented strength and power of the galaxy. Searchlights seared out and danced crazy dances up and down the pillar on the left, which was clearly made of steel or something very like it. The music thumped and bellowed. The Perspex pillar announced the man, representing the forces of science and reason in the galaxy. Other searchlights played exotically up and down the right-hand transparent pillar, creating dazzling patterns within it, and a sudden inexplicable craving for ice cream in the stomach of Arthur Dent. And, the thunderous voice continued, the wooden pillar representing and here his voice became just slightly very hoarse with wonderful sentiments the forces of nature and spirituality the lights picked out the central pillar the music moved bravely up into the realms of complete unspeakability between them supporting the voice rolled on approaching its climax the golden bale of prosperity and the silver bale of peace the whole structure was now flooded with dazzling lights and the music had now fortunately gone far beyond the limits of the discernible at the top of the three pillars, the two brilliantly gleaming bales sat and dazzled. There seemed to be girls sitting on top of them, or maybe they were meant to be angels. Angels are usually represented as wearing more clothing than that, though. Suddenly, there was a dramatic hush in what was presumably meant to be the cosmos, and a darkening of the lights. There is not a world, thrilled the man's expert voice, not a civilized world in the galaxy where this symbol is not revered. Even today, even in primitive worlds, it persists in racial memories. This it was that the forces of cricket destroyed, and this it is now that locks their world away until the end of eternity. And with a flourish, the man produced in his hands a model of the wicket gate. Scale was terribly hard to judge in this whole extraordinary spectacle, but the model looked as, as, as if it must have been about three feet high. Not the original key, of course. That, as everyone knows, was destroyed, blasted into the ever-whirling eddies of the space-time continuum, and lost forever. This is a remarkable replica, hand-tooled by skilled craftsmen, lovingly assembled using ancient craft secrets into a memento that you will be proud to own, in memory of those who fell 
and in tribute to the galaxy, our galaxy, which they died to defend. Slarty Bartfast floated past again at this moment. Found it, he said. We can lose all this rubbish. Just, just don't nod, that's all. Now let us bow our heads in payment, intoned the voice. And then it said it again, much faster and backwards. Lights came and went. The pillars disappeared. The man gabbled himself backwards into nothingness. The universe snappily reassembled itself around them. Uh, you, you get the gist, said Slarty Bartfast. I'm astonished and bewildered, said Arthur. I was asleep, said Ford, who floated into view at this point. Um, did, did I miss anything? They found themselves once again teetering rather rapidly on the edge of an agonizingly high cliff. The wind whipped about, uh, sorry, whipped out from their faces and across a bay on which the remains of one of the greatest and most powerful space battle fleets ever assembled in the galaxy was briskly burning itself back into existence. The sky was a sullen pink, darkening via a rather curious colour to blue and upwards to black. Smoke billowed down out of it at an incredible lick. Events were now passing back by them almost too quickly to be distinguished, and when, a short while later, a huge star battleship rushed away from them as if they'd said boo, they only just recognised it as the point at which they'd come in. But now things were too rapid, a video-tactile blur which brushed and jiggled them through centuries of galactic history, turning, twisting, flickering. The sound was a mere thin trill. Periodically, through the thickening jumble of events, they sensed appalling catastrophes, deep horrors, cataclysmic shocks, and these were always associated with certain recurring images. The only images which ever stood out clearly from the avalanche of tumbling history. A wicket gate, a small hard red ball, hard white robots, and also something less distinct, something dark and cloudy. But there was also another sensation which rose clearly out of the trilling passage of time. Just as a slow series of clicks, when speeded up, will lose the definition of each individual click and gradually take on the quality of a sustained and rising tone, so a series of individual impressions here took on the e e sorry, took on the quality of a sustained emotion, and yet not an emotion. If it was an emotion, it was a totally emotionless one. It was hatred implacable hatred. It was cold, not like ice is cold, but like a wall is cold. It was impersonal, not like a randomly flung fist in a crowd is impersonal, but like a computer-issued parking summons is impersonal. And it was deadly, again, not like a bullet or a knife is deadly, but like a brick wall across a motorway is deadly. And just as a rising tone will change in character and take on harmonics as it rises, so again this emotionless emotion 
seemed to rise to an unbearable, if unheard, scream, and suddenly seemed to be a scream of guilt and failure. And suddenly it stopped. They were left standing on a quiet hilltop on a tranquil evening. The sun was setting. All around them, softly undulating green countryside rolled off gently into the distance. Birds sang about what they thought of it all, and the general opinion seemed to be good. A little way away could be heard the sound of children playing, and a little further away still than the apparent source of that sound, they could see, sorry, and a little further away than the apparent source of that sound could be seen in the dimming evening light the outlines of a small town. The town appeared to consist mostly of fairly low buildings made of white stone. The skyline was of gentle, pleasing curves. The sun had nearly set. As if out of nowhere, music began. Slarty Bartfast tugged at a switch, and it stopped. A voice said, this. Slarty Bartfast tugged at a switch, and it stopped. I will tell you about it, he said quietly. The place was peaceful. Arthur felt happy. Even Ford seemed cheerful. They walked a short way in the direction of the town, and the informational illusion of the grass was pleasant and springy under their feet, and the informational illusion of the flowers smelt sweet and fragrant. Only Slarty Bartfast seemed apprehensive and out of sorts. He stopped and looked up. It suddenly occurred to Arthur coming as this did at the end, so to speak, or rather at the beginning of all the horror that they had just blurrily experienced, that something nasty must be about to happen. He was distressed to think that something nasty could happen to something or somewhere as idyllic as this. He too glanced up. There was nothing in the sky. They're not about to attack here, are they? he said. He realised that this was merely a recording he was walking through, but still he felt alarmed. Uh, nothing is, is about to attack here, said Slarty Bartfast in a voice which unexpectedly trembled with emotion. This is where it all starts. This is the place itself. This is cricket. He stared up into the sky. The sky from one horizon to another, from east to west, from north to south, was utterly and completely black. Stomp, stomp, were Pleased to be of service. Shut up. Thank you. Stomp, 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 stomp. Whirr. 
Thank you for making a simple door very happy. Hope your diodes rot. Thank you. Have a nice day. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Whirr. It is my pleasure to open for Zarkov and my satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. I said Zarkov. Thank you for listening to this message. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Whoop. Zaphod stopped stomping. He had been stomping around the heart of gold for days, and so far no door had said whoop to him. He was fairly certain that no door had said whoop to him now. It was not the sort of thing doors said. Too concise. Furthermore, there were not enough doors. It sounded as if a hundred thousand people had said whoop, which puzzled him, because he was the only person on the ship. It was dark. Most of the ship's non-essential systems were closed down. It was drifting idly in a remote area of the galaxy, deep in the inky blackness of space. So which particular hundred thousand people would turn up at this point and say a totally unexpected whop? He looked about him, up the corridor, down the corridor. It was all in deep shadow. There were just the very dim, pinkish outlines to the doors, which glowed in the dark and pulsed whenever they spoke, though he had tried every way he could think of of stopping them. The lights were off so that his heads could avoid looking at each other, because neither of them was currently a particularly engaging sight, and nor had they been, and nor had they been since he had made the error of looking into his soul. It had indeed been an error. It had been late one night, of course. It had been a difficult day, of course. There had been soulful music playing on the ship's sound system, of course. And he had, of course, been slightly drunk. In other words, all the usual conditions which bring on a bout of soul-searching had applied, but it had, nevertheless, clearly been an error. Standing now silent and alone in the dark corridor, he remembered the moment and shivered. His one head looked one way and his other the other, and each decided that the other was the way to go. He listened, but could hear nothing. All there had been was the whop. It seemed an awfully long way to bring an awfully large number of people just to say one word. He started nervously to edge his way in the direction of the bridge. There, at least, he would feel in control. He stopped again. The way he was feeling he didn't think was an awfully good person sorry the way he was feeling he didn't think he was an awfully good person to be in control. The first shock of that moment, thinking back, had been discovering that he actually had a soul. 
In fact, he'd always more or less assumed that he'd had one as he uh, <clears throat> sorry, in fact, he had always more or less assumed that he had one as he had a full complement of everything else, and indeed two of some things. But suddenly to actually encounter the thing lurking there deep within within him had given him a severe jolt. And then to discover, and this was the second shock, that it wasn't the totally wonderful object which he felt a man in his position had a natural right to expect, had jolted him again. Then he had thought about what his position actually was, and the renewed shock had nearly made him spill his drink. He drained it quickly before anything serious happened to it. He then had another quick one to follow the first one down and check that it was all right. Freedom, he said aloud. Trillian came on to the bridge at that point and said several enthusiastic things on the subject of freedom. I can't cope with it, he said darkly, and sent a third drink down to see why the second hadn't yet reported on the condition of the first. He looked uncertainly at both of her and preferred the one on the right. He poured a drink down his other throat with the plan that it would head off the previous one at the pass, join forces with it, and together they would get the second drink to pull itself together. Then all three would go off in search of the first, give it a damn good talking to, and maybe a bit of a sing as well. He felt uncertain as to whether the fourth drink had understood all that, so he sent down a fifth to explain the plan more fully, and a sixth for moral support. "'You're drinking too much,' said Trillian. His heads collided, trying to sort out the four of her, as he could now see into a whole person. He gave up and looked at the navigation screen, and was astonished to see a quite phenomenal number of stars. "'Excitement and adventure and really wild things,' he muttered. "'Look,' she said in a sympathetic tone of voice, and sat down near him. "'It's quite understandable that you're going to feel a bit aimless for a bit.' He boggled. He had never seen anyone sit on their own lap before. Wow, he said, and had another drink. You finished the mission you've been on for years. I haven't been on it. I've been trying to avoid being on it. You still finished it. He grunted. There seemed to be a terrific party going on in his stomach. I think it finished me, he said. Here I am, Zephard Beeblebrox. I can go anywhere, do anything. I have the greatest ship in the known sky, a girl with whom things seem to be working out pretty well. Are they? As far as I can tell, I'm not an expert in personal relationships. Trillian raised her eyebrows. I am, he added, one hell of a guy. I can do anything I want, only I just don't have the faintest idea what. He paused. One thing, he further added, has suddenly ceased to lead to another. In contradiction of which he had another drink and slid gracelessly off his chair.
Whilst he slept it off, Trillian did a little research on the ship's copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It had some advice to offer on drunkenness. Go to it, it said, and good luck. It was cross-referenced to the entry concerning the size of the universe and ways of coping with that. Then she found the entry on Han Wavell, an exotic holiday planet, and one on the wonders of the galaxy. Han Wavell is a world which consists largely of fabulous ultra-luxury hotels and casinos, all of which have been formed by the natural erosion of wind and rain. The chances of this happening are more or less one to infinity against. Little is known of how this came about, because none of the geophysicists, probably probability statisticians, meteor analysts and bizarrologists who are so keen to research it can possibly afford to stay there. Terrific, thought Trillian to herself. And within a few hours, the great white running, show, running shoe ship was slowly powering down out of the sky beneath a hot, brilliant sun towards a brightly coloured sandy spaceport. The ship was clearly causing a sensation on the ground, and Trillian was enjoying herself. She heard Zaphod moving around and whistling somewhere in the ship. "'How are you?' she said over the general intercom. "'Fine!' he said brightly. "'Terribly well! "'Where are you?' "'In the bathroom.' "'What are you doing?' "'Staying here.' After an hour or two it became plain that he meant it, and the ship returned to the sky without having once opened its hatchway. "'Hey-ho!' said Eddie the computer. Trillian nodded patiently, tapped her fingers a couple of times, and pushed the intercom switch. "'I think that enforced fun is probably not what you need at this point.' "'Probably not,' said Zaphod from wherever it was he was. "'I think a bit of a physical challenge would help you draw yourself out of yourself.' "'Whatever you think, I think.' said Zaphod. Recreational impossibilities was a heading which caught Trillian's eye when, a short while later, she sat down to flip through the guide again, and as the heart of gold rushed at improbable speeds in an indeterminate direction. She sipped a cup of something undrinkable from the Nutrimatics drinks dispenser and read about how to fly. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say on the subject of flying. There is an art, it says, or rather a knack to flying. The knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. Pick a nice day, it suggests, and try it. The first part is easy. All it requires is simply the ability to throw yourself forward with all your weight and the willingness not to mind that it's going to hurt. That is, it's going to hurt if you fail to miss the ground. Most people fail to miss the ground, and if they are trying really properly, 
the likelihood is that they will fail to miss it fairly hard. Clearly, it is this second part, the missing, which presents the difficulties. One problem is that you have to miss the ground accidentally. It is no good deliberately intending to miss the ground, because you won't. You have to have your attention suddenly distracted by something else when you're halfway there, so that you are no longer thinking about falling, or about the ground, or about how much it's going to hurt if you fail to miss it. It is notoriously difficult to prize your attention away from these three things during the split second you have at your disposal. Hence most people's failure, and their eventual disillusionment with this exhilarating and spectacular sport. If, however, you are lucky enough to have your attention momentarily distracted at the crucial moment by, say, a gorgeous pair of legs, tentacles, pseudopodia, according to phylum and all personal inclination, or a bomb going off in your vicinity, or by suddenly spotting an extremely rare species of beetle crawling along a nearby twig, then in your astonishment you will miss the ground completely, and remain bobbing just a few inches above it in what might seem to be a slightly foolish manner. This is a moment for superb and delicate concentration. Bob and float. Float and bob. Ignore all considerations of your own weight and simply let yourself waft higher. Do not listen to what anybody says to you at this point because they are unlikely to say anything helpful. They are most likely to say something along the lines of good, God, you can't possibly be flying! It is vitally important not to believe them, or they will suddenly be right. Waft higher and higher. Try a few swoops, gentle ones at first, then drift above the treetops, breathing regularly. Do not wave at anybody. When you have done this a few times, you will find the moment of distraction rapidly becomes easier and easier to achieve. You will then learn all sorts of things about how to control your flight, your speed, your manoeuvrability, and the trick usually lies in not thinking too hard about whatever you want to do, but just allowing it to happen as if it was going to happen anyway. You will also learn about how to land properly, which is something you will almost certainly cock up, and cock up badly on your first attempt. There are private flying clubs you can join which help you achieve the all-important moment of distraction. They hire people with surprising bodies or opinions to leap out from behind bushes and exhibit and or explain them at the critical moments. Few genuine hitchhikers will be available to afford to join these clubs but some may be able to get temporary employment at them. Trillion 
read this longingly, but reluctantly decided that Zaphod wasn't really in the right frame of mind for attempting to fly, or for walking through mountains, or for trying to get the Brantisvogan civil service to acknowledge a change of address card, which were the other things listed under the heading Recreational Impossibilities. Instead, she flew the ship to Allosimanius Sinica, a world of ice, snow, mind-hurtling beauty and stunning cold. The trek from the snow plains of Liska to the summit of the ice-crystal pyramids of uh, Sastantua is long and gruelling, even with jet skis and a team of Sinica snowhands, but the view from the top, a view which takes in the thin glacier fields, the shimmering prism mountains and the far ethereal dancing ice lights is one which first freezes the mind and then slowly releases it to hitherto unexperienced horizons of beauty. And Trillian, for one, felt that she could do with a bit of having her mind slowly released to hitherto unexperienced horizons of beauty. They went into a low orbit. There lay the silver-white beauty of Allosimanius Sinica beneath them. Zaphod stayed in bed, with one head stuck under a pillow, and the other doing crosswords till late into the night. Trillian nodded patiently again, counted to a sufficiently high number, and told herself that the important thing now was just to get Zaphod talking. She prepared, by dint of deactivating all the robot kitchen synthematics, the most fabulously delicious meal she could contrive. Delicately oiled meats, scented fruits, fragrant cheeses, fine Alderbaran wines. She carried it through to him and asked if he felt like talking things through. Zarkov, said Zaphod. Trillian nodded patiently to herself, counted to an even higher number, tossed the tray lightly aside, walked to the transport room, and just teleported herself the hell out of his life. She didn't even program any coordinates. She hadn't the faintest idea where she was going. She just went a random row of dots flowing through the universe. Anything, she said to herself as she left, is better than this. Good job too, muttered Zaphod to himself, turned over and utterly failed to go to sleep. The next day, he restlessly paced the empty corridors of the ship, pretending not to look for her, though he knew she wasn't there. He ignored the computer's querulous demands to know just what the hell was going on around here by fitting a small electronic gag across a pair of its terminals. After a while, he began to turn down the lights. There was nothing to see, nothing was about to happen lying in bed one night, and night was now virtually continuous on the ship, he decided to pull himself together, to get things into some sort of perspective. He sat up sharply and started to pull clothes on. 
He decided that there must be someone in the universe feeling more wretched, miserable and forsaken than himself, and he determined to set out and find him. Halfway to the bridge it occurred to him that it might be Marvin. So he returned to bed. It was a few hours later than this as he stomped disconsolately about the darkened corridors, swearing at cheerful doors, that he heard the whop, and it made him very nervous. He leant tensely against the corridor wall and frowned like a man trying to unbend a corkscrew by telekinesis. He laid his fingertips against the wall and felt an unusual vibration. He could hear quite clearly slight noises and could hear where they were coming from. They were coming from the bridge. Moving his hand along the wall he came across something he was glad to find. He moved on a little further, quietly. Computer, he hissed. Mm, said the computer terminal nearest to him, equally quietly. Is there someone on the ship? Mm, said the computer. Who is it? Mm, 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 said the computer. What? Mm, mm, mm. Zaphod buried one of his faces in two of his hands. Oh, Zarquan, he muttered to himself. Then he stared up the corridor towards the entrance to the bridge in the dim distance from which more, more and purposeful noises were coming and in which the gagged terminals were situated. Computer, he hissed again. Mm? When I ungag you, mm? remind me to punch myself in the mouth. Mm? Either one. Now, just tell me this. One for yes, two for no. Is it dangerous? Mm. It is? Mmm. You didn't just go mmm twice. Mmm. Hmm. He inched his way up the corridor as if he would rather be yarding his way down it, which was true. He was within two yards of the door to the bridge when suddenly he realized to his horror that it was going to be nice to him. He stopped dead. He hadn't been able to turn off the door's courtesy voice circuits. The doorway to the bridge was concealed from view within it because of the excitingly chunky way in which the bridge had been designed to curve around, and he had been hoping to enter unobserved. He leant despondently back against the wall again and said some words which his other head was quite shocked to hear. He peered at the dim outline of the door 
and discovered that in the darkness of the corridor he could just about make out the sensor field which extended out into the corridor and told the door when there was someone there for whom it must open and to whom it must make a cheery and pleasant remark. He pressed himself hard back against the wall and edged himself towards the door, flattening his chest as much as he possibly could to avoid brushing against the very, very dim perimeter of the field. He held his breath and congratulated himself on having lain in bed sulking for the last few days rather than trying to work out his feelings on chest expanders in the ship's gym. He then realised he was going to have to speak at this point. He took a very, a series of very shallow breaths, and then said as quickly and quietly as he could, Dor, if you can hear me, say so very, very quietly. Very, very quietly, the door murmured, I can hear you. Good. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to open. When you open, I do not want you to say that you enjoyed it. Okay? Okay. And I do not want you to say to me that I have made a simple door very happy, or that it is your pleasure to open for me and your satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. Okay? Okay. And I do not want you to ask me to have a nice day. Understand? I understand. Okay said Zaphod, tensing himself. Open now. The door slid open quietly. Zaphod slipped quietly through. The door closed quietly behind him. Is that the way you like it, Mr. Beeblebrax? said the door out loud. I want you to imagine said Zaphod, to the group of white robots who suddenly swung round to stare at him at that point, that I have an immen immensely powerful Kilozap blazer pistol, bla bla blaster pistol, in my hand. There was an immensely cold and savage silence. The robots regarded him with hideously dead eyes. They stood very still. There was something intensely macabre about their appearance, especially to Zaphod, who had never seen one before or ever known anything about them. The Cricket Wars belonged to the ancient past of the galaxy, and Zaphod had spent most of his early history lessons plotting how he was going to have sex with the girl in the cyber-cubicle next to him, and since his teaching computer had been an integral part of this plot, it had eventually had all of its history circuits wiped and replaced with an entirely different set of ideas, which had then resulted in it being scrapped and sent to a home for degenerate cybermats, whether it was followed by the girl who had inadvertently fallen deeply in love with the un unfortunate machine, with the result that a. Zaphod never got near her, and b. that he missed out on a period of ancient history that would have been inestimable value to him at this precisely this moment. He stared at them in shock. 
It was impossible to explain why, but their smooth and sleek white bodies seemed to be the utter embodiment of clean, clinical evil. From their hideously dead eyes to their powerful, lifeless feet, they were clearly the calculated product of a mind that wanted, simply, to kill. Zaphod gulped in cold fear. They had been dismantling part of the rear bridge wall, and had forced a passage through some of the vital innards of the ship. Through the tangled wreckage, Zaphod could see, with a further and worse sense of shock, that they were tunnelling towards the very heart of the ship the heart of the improbability drive that had been so mysteriously created out of thin air, the heart of gold itself. The robot closest to him was regarding him in such a way as to suggest that it was measuring every small particle of his body, mind and capability, and when it spoke, what it said seemed to bear this impression out. Before going on to what it actually said, it is worth recording that at this point Zaphod was the first living organic being to hear one of these creatures speak for something over ten billion years. If he had paid more attention to his ancient history lessons and less to his organic being, he might have been more impressed by this honour. The robot's voice was, like its body, cold, sleek, and lifeless. It had an almost cultured rasp to it. It sounded as ancient as it was. It said, You do have a kilozap blaster pistol in your hand. Zaphod didn't know what it meant for a moment, but then he glanced down at his own hand and was relieved to see that what he had found clipped to a wall bracket was indeed what he thought it was. "'Yeah,' he said in a kind of relieved sneer, which is quite tricky. "'Well, I wouldn't want to overtext your imagination, robot.' For a while, nobody said anything, and Zaphod realised that the robots were obviously not here to make conversation, and that it was up to him. "'I can't help noticing that you have parked your ship,' he said with a nod of one of his heads in the appropriate direction through mine. There was no denying this. Without regard for any kind of proper dimensional behaviour, they had simply materialised their ship precisely where they wanted it to be, which meant that it was simply locked through the heart of gold, as if they were nothing more than two combs. Again, they made no response to this, and Zaphod wondered if the conversation would gather any momentum. Sorry, and Zaphod wondered if the conversation would gather any momentum if he phrased this part of it in the form of questions. "'Haven't you?' he added. "'Yes,' replied the robot. "'Oh, okay,' said Zaphod. "'So, uh, what are you cats doing here?' Silence. "'Robots,' said Zaphod. "'What are you robots doing here?' We have come, rasped the robot, for the gold bale. Zaphod nodded. He waggled his gun to invite further elaboration. The robot seemed to understand this. The gold bale is part of the key we seek, continued the robot, to release our masters from cricket. Zaphod nodded again. He waggled his gun again. <laughs> 
The key, continued the robot simply, was disintegrated in time and space. The golden bale is embedded in the device which drives your ship. It will be reconstituted in the key. Our masters shall be released. The universal readjustment will continue. Zaphod nodded again. What are you talking about? he said. A slightly pained expression seemed to cross the robot's totally expressionless face. He seemed to be finding the conversation depressing. Obliteration, it said. We seek the key, it repeated. We already have the wooden pillar, the steel pillar, and the perspex pillar. In a moment we will have the gold bale. No, you won't. We will stated the robot. No, you won't. It makes my ship work. In a moment, repeated the robot patiently, we will have the gold bale. You will not, said Zaphod. And then we must go, said the robot in all seriousness, to a party. Oh, said Zaphod, startled. Can I come? No, said the robot. We are going to shoot you. Oh, yeah? said Zaphod, waggling his gun. Yes, said the robot. And they shot him. Zaphod was so surprised that they had to shoot him again before he finally fell down. And that... At twenty past ten on Sunday evening, uh, the 21st, that's what it is, 21st of June, is where we will leave it. Uh, thank you again, everybody, uh, for coming along and listening. I really, 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 really do appreciate it with uh, with this stuff, so uh, it totally makes my, my Sundays. Um, we will continue next Sunday, same time, around 9pm. Um, Central European, Central European summertime, um, eight o'clock in uh, the UK, and other times elsewhere in the planet. I can't be asked to work it out myself, to be quite honest. However, thank you very much once again for your company, um, and I hope you have a splendid week. We are hopefully looking forward to some great weather here in Denmark. I hope the same is uh, true for you wherever you're listening to this in the world. Be good to yourselves, be good to people around you, stay hoopy, stay fruity, um, and you may even choose to flollop or volume or whatever. But look after yourselves uh, and see you next week. Thanks very much, guys. <laughs>